Well, good morning. How's everybody today? I hope that you are comfortable here. Hope that uh, coming out of the cold a little bit and get a bit of maybe some coffee or um, have an opportunity to to get some comfortable seating this morning. Next week we're going to talk. Um, we'll, we'll be having our Christmas brunch, and so speaking of comfort, we're going to be having some comfort food next week. Um, so we want to invite all of you to come and to participate in that. We'll be sitting around tables in this room next week. When you think about comfort, what do you think about? Do you think about being nice and warm in a place? Do you think about your favorite comfort foods? Do you think about sitting in your favorite recliner? Maybe you're like Jonathan Purser and you think about what's on his wish list, on his Amazon wish list, is a a camo Snuggie. Y'all all all go get that for him uh, this time around for this Christmas, and I'm sure he'll appreciate that. I'm, I'm picking on Jonathan this morning. We want you to be comfortable next week. We don't want you to be that comfortable. Um, but next week will be a great time for us to fellowship around the table. Well, comfort has another meaning as well. Um, biblically, as we look at comfort, the idea of comfort, a lot of times we're looking at what it means to be consoled when there is grief. When there's death, when there's tragedy, when there's hardship. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning um, as we are continuing through this season of Advent. And the passage for this morning comes out of Isaiah 40 and is looking at what it means to be comforted by the Lord. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talks about comfort. And he tells us that we as Christians are to comfort others with the comfort with which we have ourselves have been comforted. That there is a comfort that God um, gives us in Christ and that we are to take that same comfort and give it to others as we minister to them. So the question that we're going to look at this morning out of this passage is when you are in, in discomfort, when there is great um, discomfort in your life, are you ever tempted to wonder, does God really care? Is God really in this? Has he forgotten about me? Is God so great and and magnificent that my life is insignificant to him? Is his plan so big that my life doesn't matter to him? That the details of my life are kind of just a, a, a rounding error in his grand scheme of things and they don't matter. Um, maybe his purposes are so big that we're not significant. Well, there's a couple of questions that we're going to see from Isaiah 40. And just to kind of give you an idea of where I'm going this morning, this is out of my comfort zone. I love to be kind of walk you through the, the text very expositorily. And as I've looked at this passage this week, I started to do the first 11 verses. And I was like, you can't do the first 11 verses without really doing the rest of the chapter. And so what we're going to do, instead of keeping you here until 3 o'clock today, we're going to be like in the treetops. Okay, we're not going to be down in the ground. We're going to be in the treetops. I want to bring some observations out of the text. But I also want to encourage you as we're going through this to be looking at what we're talking about, because I'm going to read a fair amount of the passage, but I'm not going to read all of it. So if I see your head looking down, I'm going to assume you're in your Bible. If you nod off, we might throw something at you. But uh, I want to encourage you to to look at the scriptures as well as I'm talking about it. Um, So there's two big questions that I want us to see here that come out of Isaiah 40. The first 11 verses really address this question. Does God care about his people suffering? And then 12 through 26 addresses this question. Is God able to deliver his people? Can he actually do something about it? And then the last few verses, 27 to 31, are really kind of a a wrap up 
a summary and application of what do we do with this. So today is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is the time where we focus on that Christ has come and he is coming again as a conquering king. We celebrate what he has done, but we also look forward with hope to what he is going to do. And so sometimes I think it's it's easy for us to kind of get bogged down in our own circumstances and not be able to lift our eyes to see this glorious reality. And we want to be able to do that today. So I, I think God uses a text like Isaiah 40 to let us see that, that he does care, uh, that he is able to deliver, and that He is he, his purposes for his glory and for our good are bigger than our circumstances. And in fact, sometimes he brings those circumstances to show us that. So let me give you a little bit of background before I dive into Isaiah 40. Mitch preached last week, um, a little bit later in the book. But so when you look at Isaiah, um, Isaiah prophesied around the year 740 to at least 681 B.C. And he lived in this period of a divided kingdom in Israel. And he preached primarily. um, He saw the northern kingdom destroyed in his lifetime and the people deported in 722 um, by the Assyrians. And he primarily spoke to the kingdom of Judah. And he prophesied about a coming judgment to them and called them to repent and turn from their sin, which they didn't do. And so he also prophesied about the fact that because they wouldn't do that, they would be carried off into captivity in Babylon and what uh, God's purpose was for them even in that. So he spoke about God's plan of redemption for the people on the back end of that judgment. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you see Isaiah warning about God's judgment and calling the people to repentance. And I think it's interesting if you look at Isaiah chapter 6, which is Isaiah's call to ministry, um, the Lord says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Lord, here am I, send me. And then even as part of his call to ministry, God tells him that the people's response is going to be that they will hear but not understand, that they will see but not perceive, that they'll have dull hearts and heavy ears and blind eyes, and the result would be in judgment. That's a hard call to ministry, y'all. I don't, wouldn't want to pastor that church. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, that's Isaiah's call. And so the first part, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is really this heavy, plodding, um, hard sledding. And then you get to Isaiah 40, and this language just really soars. Um, you, you begin to see this, um, this hope that... Is, is spoken to the people even in the midst of their disobedience, even in the midst of their judgment. Um, and if you are familiar with Handel's Messiah that gets um, performed a lot around Christmas time, the very beginning of that, of that score is, uh, and, the, and the words come directly out of Isaiah 40 here. So if you haven't taken to listen to that uh, this, this Christmas time, take a listen to it. So as Isaiah writes the first part of his book, Disaster Hasn't Yet Come to Judah, and the people have grown tired of his warning. They, they're, they're kind of tuning him out. They're not listening to him. Um, and his constant talk of their need to repent and turn to God. And so Isaiah writes the second half of this book, starting in chapter 40 here, looking forward to this point in history where the people would be in exile. And they would be conquered. They'd be taken away to Babylon. And he was prophesying about this time that was yet to come where Jerusalem would be destroyed. And that happened in 586 B.C., Jerusalem had this wonderful, beautiful temple um, that was destroyed. It was sacked. The people were taken off in captivity. And God knew, even before that happened, 
that when the people were taken off, they would not need to continue to hear about warnings of judgment and warnings of sin. They would need to be comforted. They would not be reminded of their sin because they'd be living in the consequences of their sin every day. That they would need to hear hope. And they would need to hear that God still had a purpose for them. That he still was not done with them. And so that's what we see in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is kind of the hinge where things swing to the future. And you go from the people um, being warned to being encouraged. And so Isaiah answers these questions. Is this exile the end of the line for us as God's people? Does God still care about us as a people? Does he care about our suffering at all? Can he do anything about it? And so last week, Mitch looked at Isaiah 64, which is kind of chronologically ahead of where Isaiah 40 is written. But um, Isaiah 40 is written behind it, but it looks forward past Isaiah 64, where the people said, Oh, Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? Um, And this is looking past that reality to when that actually happens. So let me read uh, Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Let's read that together. I want to make a few observations from it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. In these verses 1 to 11, God declares to Israel what he's going to do to rescue them and to redeem them from spiritual and physical captivity and exile. And in love, I think it's really interesting, he declares this. Years before they experience it, years before they even see their need of rescue, before they acknowledge their sin and before they repent and long for his coming. God loved his chosen people, the people of his covenant so much that he initiated this rescue plan before they even knew that they needed to be rescued. And even when they defied their king, he initiated this rescue plan and he loved them even in discipline and in judgment. In fact, he loved them enough to send them into discipline and judgment so that they would be ready to receive him. And this mighty, powerful, sovereign, holy God, this is the God that declares comfort and rescue to his people and to us as his people. Isn't that a great picture of the gospel? Isn't that what we just have studied through in Ephesians? Right? That's, did God wait until we got our act together to rescue us? He predestined us, as we saw in Ephesians 1, 4 to 6, right? 
He saved us while we were dead in our trespasses and while we were children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And while we were separated and far off from God, he brought us near to Christ in Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. That's the picture of the gospel right here out of the Old Testament. And you see this so many times. The gospel preaches from the Old Testament and the New Testament. So God declared that there's a rescue that was going to be accomplished. And yet his timing is not always as our timing, right? Second Peter 3, 8 to 10 tells us that a day is as a thousand years with him and as a thousand years is as a day. And sometimes our concept of time and God's concept of time don't really match up. But God's purposes are sure and they don't fail. So we're reminded that God always keeps his promises. So what I want to do in walking through, I want to spend the most of our time in these first 11 verses. I want to kind of quickly run through 12 to 26 and then hit a few things in in 27 to to 31. But in these first 11 verses, Isaiah is really addressing this question. Does God care about his people's suffering? And I want us to see four answers, four ways that he shows us that God cares about his people's suffering. The first one is in the first two verses. He says, yes, God cares about his people's suffering and he provides comfort and forgiveness. So this word comfort is often used when we talk about the loss of a loved one. When we talk about crisis. Um, when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed and the people were carried off into captivity, it seemed like they as the people of God were dead, that they were no more. And yet God provides comfort through the prophet even past his life. Right, Isaiah is, is figuratively speaking, speaking from the grave to them. This is beyond his lifetime. Um, hope to them. Because God knew that they were going to need comfort as captives in Babylon. They didn't need Isaiah at that point to shake his finger at them and say, I told you so. Look, you boneheads, you messed up. Now look what you've done. Right? They didn't need that. They needed somebody to speak hope to them. And so this is what God says to them from Isaiah Uh, verses 41 and 2 comfort comfort my people says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sins I think it's interesting that this word that's translated comfort uh, can be translated a few other ways It it can mean to be sorry to console oneself to repent to regret to be comforted this word is naham And its root has this idea of breathing in deeply, like you do sometimes when you're really sad, when you're really grieving and just maybe you're breathing deeply. Maybe you're breathing deeply to comfort someone that you're sitting with and you don't know what to say, but you want to provide comfort. It it can mean to breathe deeply with sorrow for your own sin, to breathe deeply as you comfort or console someone. And, and the, the inference here is that God's comfort comes as a result of the people's repentance. That's true for us today as well. God provides comfort for us in repentance. When we turn to him, when we admit to him our sin, when we align with him in his purposes, and when we say, God, not my way, but your way. God, I was wrong. I'm turning from my way to your way. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul reminds us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There are times I think we feel spiritually exiled. We feel maybe spiritually dead or or numb. 
because of our sins very often. And these verses remind us of the Lord's faithfulness. See, if, if you have entered a covenant relationship with him through Christ, he's not giving up on you. He will be faithful even in the face of our unfaithfulness. Jesus went into exile for us. And so our hard service is over because of what he has accomplished on our behalf. Our sins have been paid for. So you don't have to punish yourself to get God's forgiveness. You just have to accept it and you have to walk in it. We can, we can discover today that our sin really has been cleansed and that it is no longer an issue between us and God. Um, Isaiah earlier had said to them in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And now, later on, they're actually able and ready to receive that word. And so their sins had been paid for, and there was a sense that deliverance was coming. It's in the air. But I want you to notice from this passage, it's not because of what the people had done, right? It doesn't say that here, does it? It's because of what God had done. It was unmerited, undeserved favor. God was coming to them to deliver them, just as he comes to deliver us, not because of what we can offer him, but because he is good and gracious to us in Christ. So just as a question of, of application this morning, as we prepare to celebrate that Christ has come and that he's coming again, can you find comfort in daily turning from your own sin and turning to Christ as your only hope so that you are ready to greet him as he comes back as our conquering king? This question of does God care about his people suffering, Isaiah addresses it as well in these next few verses in, in 3 to 5. He says, yes, and God provides comfort in his presence by making a way. Um, in, in ancient times, there were no superhighways, right? There was no I-75. There was even no 27. There was no um, even two-lane road. Um, and so a lot of times, months before a king came to his his people, um, he would send out this posse ahead of the time and declare, declare to the people, the king is coming, the king is coming. And so what do the people do? They're like, oh, gosh, we just got pig trails through here. Let's make a road. Let's make the highway straight for him. And so they would literally clear a highway. They would literally fill in valleys, cut down trees, level hillsides, and make a way so that when that king came, that they would get to see him in all the glory of his procession and he would be shown to be a worthy king in their eyes. Um, this call would go out, prepare the way for the king, make straight away in the wilderness and a highway for the king. And the, the people run out ahead and they, they, they make all these preparations. And in this passage, God takes that same Im imagery and says he is coming. He's coming to his people. He's on his way to see them, to rescue them, those that are now in slavery to a foreign nation. He's coming to deliver them from captivity and to bring them home on this highway, not that they prepared, but that he prepared so that he could come to them and that he could bring them back to himself. Uh, I think it's a glorious picture that, in, uh, and I believe in their minds, they thought, well, we're just going back to Jerusalem and that's all that this entails. And that was part of it. God did bring his people back to Jerusalem. Uh, but there's a there's a much greater extent to that as well. So in verse five, Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When Isaiah says all flesh, he's talking about the nation of Israel, but he's also talking about the Gentiles as well. He's talking about everybody. Everybody's going to see this. 
and they're going to see the return of the Lord and the return of the people. And God intends that they see the return of the people and that they give glory to God, their father, that that others might be saved as well. Just as Rahab was saved when she saw what God had done in rescuing his people out of Egypt. He intends that the nations will see what he does on his people's behalf and that they will be saved as well. And so this prophecy, like I said, was fulfilled in part when the people returned from exile. Um, But they returned to Jerusalem and it was never like it was before. They rebuilt the temple, but it was never as good as it was before. God's presence didn't dwell there. The building was not nearly as nice. It was it was really a shell of its former self. But ultimately, this prophecy is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Jesus came and in uh, in the Gospels, all the Gospels, we see that John John the Baptist owns this voice in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Right? We see that his ministry is one of preparation and of making a pathway um, for preparation for Jesus to come. And he calls the people out to the wilderness to repent, to change their sinful ways, to prepare for the coming of the Lord. He calls them to leave the promised land. Um, and come out to the wilderness and be baptized in the Jordan River, which is really kind of a symbolic reenacting of this whole exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and entry into the promised land through the Jordan River. There's so much imagery like that in here that I wish that we could get to today that it's just it's beautiful. Um, but it is it is a glorious picture of what God has done in rescuing his people. So as we think about God's comfort that is provided to us from repentance, I want to make a statement to you that, that we make from time to time here that I firmly believe repentance should be the dominant characteristic of a life of a follower of Jesus. That day by day we ought to be seeking to turn from ourself, to turn to Jesus, to make our lives less of, about us and more about Him. To make it less about what I want and more about what He wants. Less about my selfish desires and more about his kingdom desires. And so repentance is a daily thing for us. We have never come to the point that we have arrived. But we're always called to be uh, repenting and turning away from our own selfish desires and to the desires of our king. What does that kind of repentance look like when we're in difficulty? What does it look like when we are um, faced with hardship? Well, I think one of the things that it looks like particularly for me speaking as a man, is that it it looks like we stop trying to deliver ourselves. We We stop trying to rescue ourselves and we turn to God and we seek for him to be our deliverer. We seek for him to be our comforter. Um, we lean wholly on the one, the only one that can speak comfort and pardon. As I think my tendency and, and maybe some of your tendency is when I get in trouble, when things go bad, I just tend to grit and bear down and work harder and try to deliver myself. And that's not what we're, that's not what we're called to do. God is our deliverer and he will provide a way for us. So to do that, you have to leave the city and go out to the wilderness, so to speak. You have to leave that which is comfortable and seek comfort in the Lord. You have to own up to your sin. You have to stop making excuses for it and you have to confess it to him. And that's how you prepare the way in your own wilderness for God's move in your own life. For the king to come into the highway of your life. 
So as we prepare to celebrate that Christ came and he's coming again, I want to challenge you to find comfort this Advent season in, and to find rescue in repentance and in trusting God to deliver you and not depending on yourself to deliver yourself. Uh, the third thing I think we see in this, this 1 to 11 passage, when we ask this question, does God care about his people's suffering? Is Yes, he does. And he has provided comfort in his eternal word. And we see that in verses 6 to 8. See, in verses 6 to 8, there's this contrast between all flesh and the people and God's word. And all flesh and the people are temporary. They're transitory. They are easy to blow away. But God's word stands forever. God's word is established forever. God's word doesn't change. God's word is sure and we can stand on it. Humanity is like the grass and the flowers. We're blown about by the wind. We're here for a season and we're gone. But God's word stands forever. And we can, we can bank our lives on that. Um, in this context, you know, Israel is looking at the kingdom of Babylon, this great and powerful enemy who has taken them into captivity and is the most powerful thing they've ever seen. And God says, even that is something that I just can blow away. It's nothing to me. Um, but I think it's interesting that God says not only are the people like Babylon, not only are your enemies grass, but you yourselves are grass. Um, and in uh, verse 8, or verse 7, I'm sorry, he says, The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. He says the people, He's this is covenantal language. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about his own people. He's saying you're transitory too. You're not going to stick around forever. But I am forever. My word is forever. My word is sure. It doesn't, it doesn't fade away. It doesn't falter. It doesn't change. And so we can bank our lives on that. I think this was kind of an unbelievable thing for the, for the Israelites to hear. You know, imagine being in captivity far away from your home. The greatest military country you've ever seen um these are people that systematically captured and deported people out of their own lands and never ever in history did they let anyone go back except for the israelites um so this was kind of an unbelievable thing for them to hear but yet god assures them that the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the lord blows on it surely the people are grass the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our god will stand forever Jesus said that his own words carry the same weight. In Mark thirteen thirty one, he said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so again, God's word and God's purposes, God's promises are eternal. And one of the challenges we have at this time of year is for us to really believe that and to really bank our lives on that and to anchor our souls into that reality and not just think, well, it's just another fairy tale like everything else. No, this is real. This is truth, and we are called to, to anchor our lives into that truth. So if the things that maybe keep you in captivity in your own life, in your own mind, seem like they are immense, are, are they bigger than the Babylonian Empire? Um, <laughs> probably not. Um, so just a, a couple of questions of application as we look at this. Is your hope this Advent season in the sovereign king whose word stands forever? 
and particularly as we are so busy this time of year, are you listening to enough? Are you ingesting enough of God's word so that when the Holy Spirit reminds you of what he said, that you actually hear his voice, that you actually recognize his voice, that you're actually able to respond to his voice, or is it just more noise? I want to challenge you to ingest and to beat in his word enough that that when you hear that Holy Spirit reminding you, because Jesus said that's his job, to remind us of what God has said, that that registers. And you sit up and take notice and you act on it. So finally, in this this 1 to 11 passage, as we look at this question of does God care about his people's suffering? He comes back and he says, yes, and God provides comfort in a tough and tender shepherd in verses 9 to 12. And in verse 9, I think it's interesting, the, the, the bearer of this good news to the people was called to go up on a mountain and to proclaim it to the people so that, that he might be heard. And he's told not to fear as he does that. I think the temptation then, and sometimes the temptation for us, is that this news of the gospel, this good news that we're called to declare, is almost too good to be true, right? It's so good that we're like, is this, can I really say this? Can I really tell people they can be free? Can I really tell people they can be forgiven? Do I want to stand up? What if it doesn't come true? What happens if, if what I say isn't the case? And look at the news that he's called to share, starting in, in verse 9. Um, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of, Jeru- of, of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and he's, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So just as the bearer of good news in this case was called not to fear, to lift up his voice and to say it with all that he had with him, that's our calling as well. Our calling is to speak the good news of redemption in Christ without fear, um, without hesitation, because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. We're not putting our reputation out there. We're putting God's reputation out there. And he is able to deliver on what he promises. And, and just as they were told, behold your God. As, as we come in this Advent season and we look at the fact that Christ has come, we get to behold our God too. And we get to look forward to the time that we see him face to face. And our faith is his sight. So one of the things I think is, is really cool here too is that the people had not been faithful, right? But God forgives their sin and he calls them to go and be a messenger of this grace to the surrounding world. Their sin did not disqualify them from sharing the message. And neither does yours. Neither does mine. God does not say, wait until you clean yourself up enough and then you can go tell people. He says, no, tell them. Tell them what I've done. Tell them the good news. And we are called to be heralds of that good news even though we know that we're not perfect because God has given us the perfect righteousness of Christ. So these verses, this 9 to 12, is kind of a continuation, um, kind of a a further explanation of of verses 3 to 5, which promise the return of the Lord. 
in verse uh, 10 and 11 explain how he's going to come. That he's going to come as a mighty king and he's going to come with a reward and as a shepherd. Um, and, and look at verse 10. What does it say about what his recompense is, what his reward is? It's not the reward that the Lord is giving out. It's the, Lord, it's the reward that he's going to receive. What's that reward there? What's going with him and before him as he returns to Jerusalem? It's his people. It's us, y'all. His reward is not something that he is, um, that is external to us, but we get to enjoy in his reward with him because we are part of that reward. And so when you ask the question, does God care? Well, God calls you his reward. I think that means that he cares. He loves us enough to call us his reward. And finally, this picture tells us that he comes as a shepherd. You know, King David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. There are lots of pictures of, of shepherds throughout Scripture. And in tending his flock, the Lord oversees and leads his people collectively. And I, uh, verse 11, I think, just shows us that he is attentive to the needs of all of his people from the earliest age all the way through, uh, that he cares about, about each of them individually. So this is good news to us. Um, this prophecy was fulfilled, again, when the people came back from exile, but ultimately we see its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And the gospel writers proclaim Jesus as the Son of God and as God's King in Matthew 3.17, as the King of Israel coming to Jerusalem. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your King is coming to you. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he said, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. That's good news for us this week as we, as we ask this question, does God care? Does he know? Yeah, he knows. So this Advent season, just another point of application. Will you live and tell of the grace of this tough and tender shepherd who came to rescue you? Will you speak of his, of his glorious grace to you? And not because you were good enough, not because I was good enough, but because he was merciful and gracious to us. So we've looked at this question of does God care about his people's suffering? And very quickly, I want to look at the next section, 12 to 26. We ask this question, okay, well, God cares, but is he able to do something about it? Can he rescue his people? See, Isaiah addresses this question because... From one perspective, from kind of an unbelieving perspective, you might look at this and say, well, God couldn't prevent them from going into captivity in Babylon. So if he, if he can't prevent that, then maybe he can't rescue them out of it. Um, that's a very faulty perspective to look at it from, but that's a, a perspective that I think some would be looking at it from. And so it becomes even more pointed, like I said, when you when you consider the fact that no one had ever gone into Babylonian captivity and come out. They all were assimilated. They all were completely lost in their um, the the things that made their own culture unique and their own ethnicities unique. And they were completely dissipated into the Babylonian kingdom. And so Isaiah's response to that kind of question is to say, yeah, but God is unique. He's different. He's not like any other God. He's not like anybody else. God alone is the king of creation. He, his resume, he kind of puts God's resume out there and says, you sure you know who you're talking about here? 
This is the one who created the world. He's not too big for this. This is not too big for him. Let me just give you a flavor of this. I'm going to read verses 12 to 20. Um, He begins asking these rhetorical questions and with a little bit of bite to them as well. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And he goes on from here again and poses these rhetorical questions. Do you know who you're talking about here? Does this register with you? Do you know who this God is? He, he reminds us that God is the sole creator and sustainer of the universe. He reminds us that God is the ruler of all nations and that the nations are not ultimately in charge. God is in charge. He gives us an invitation and gives the people an invitation. Compare God to anything else. Is there anything else that compares to God? Is there anything else that can hold a candle to him? And then he claims for God superiority over any other God because they are not gods. They are idols. They're nothing. And he says, this is the God that you're talking about. Can he rescue you? Of course he can rescue you. Of course he can deliver you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that our God, when we talk about this, but do you really, really believe that our God is sovereign over your life, that he controls the details of your life, and that at any one moment he can choose to rescue or he can even choose to discipline us for our good? Do you believe in a powerful, almighty, sovereign creator who knows the details of your life? Or does your life, like mine does, sometimes reveal that we're practically atheists? A practicality that doesn't really, really put our faith in him. We, we trust more in self-determination than we trust in the sovereign king of the universe. This morning, I want to challenge you to put your whole trust in him as I am seeking to put my whole trust in him as well. And so finally, um, I want to wrap up and, and give some application in these last few verses, uh, starting in verse 27. Isaiah has answered these two questions that were going to be on the minds of the exiles. Does, does God care? And can God do anything about it? And he says yes to both of those. But what is the kind of appropriate response to that now? Let's look at verse 27. And he asks a question. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. He says, why would you say that? Do you know the God that we're talking about? He he anticipates this attitude that 
of the exiles that says, well, maybe God is powerful, but, you know, he's got so much going on. I'm outside his view. He's not looking at me. God doesn't care about me. My way is hidden from him. Or maybe God has given up on me. My right is disregarded. I've just done too much, too much wrong, too much bad. God's given up on me. He's not going to rescue me. And Isaiah responds to them. That's way too low a view of God. Um, Look at what he says in verse 28 to 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. He says that to this incredulous question, he responds, how could you say this about a God when you know that he is trustworthy, when you know he is able? He knows your situation and he can do something about it. So our response is to trust in him and to wait on him. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It's one of those things that is hard to do, hard to do. I love this quote by John Oswalt. He says, to wait on God is not simply to mark time. Rather, it is to live in confident expectation of his action on our behalf. It is to refuse to run ahead of him in trying to solve our problems for ourselves. Read that again. To wait on God is not to simply mark time. Rather, it is to live in confident expectation of his action on our behalf. It is to refuse to run ahead of him in trying to solve our problems for ourselves. Does that kind of waiting characterize your life? I have a real hard time with that kind of waiting. But that's the kind of waiting on the Lord that we're called to do. When we wait on the Lord, we don't seek to deliver ourselves, but we do act on what we know, and we wait for the Lord to reveal His will and His purposes to us, and to do what only God can do. We don't claim the prerogatives of God for ourselves, but we do what, what He has clearly called us to do, and we wait on Him to act and do what He can do. And then when we, like these captives of Israel, are worn out, when we're weary, when we're tired, when we think, I can't do this anymore, and, and we think, maybe there's not a future for me. God says that He can give us strength to mount up on wings like eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not be faint that he will provide his strength in his time for our need. So as we look at this passage this morning, you know, Isaiah speaks to a people that ultimately had lost hope. They had been generations in captivity at, at this point, and the impossible for them has happened. They thought that that they they could never be conquered, that they could never be deported, that they could never be taken out of Jerusalem. And yet all of that has happened and and their temple has been destroyed. And I think in a lot of ways they thought God had let them down. And Isaiah says to them and he says to us, there is nothing beyond God's power. There's nothing beyond God's compassion. There's nothing beyond God's reach. Do you not know? Have you not heard? There is nothing that God cannot do for us in Christ 
for his glory and for our good. And so the people needed to hear a word from God in a way that not only kind of went in their ears and affected their thinking, but affected the way that they lived. And we need that today, too. We need to hear not only in ways that make us think. I have categories for that. I know how to put that in my systematic theology. But we need to hear it in ways that make us think, this is what I'm going to do with this when I walk out of this room. This is what I'm going to do with this tomorrow morning on the job. This is what I'm going to do with this in my family. This is how I'm going to trust in God and wait on him in every situation. So I want to invite the band to come up as we prepare to respond to God. And I want to ask you just a a series of questions to ponder as we prepare to respond to him. Um, As you think about a faith that trusts God in in difficult times and, and truly believes and knows that in all things God is working for the good of those that love him and that are called according to his purpose. Let me ask you a few questions to to ponder and think about. How can I find comfort in daily turning from sin and to Christ as my hope so that I'm ready to greet him when he comes as a conquering king? Do I believe that God really does care about my suffering? Do I believe that the word of the Lord will stand forever? Do I trust in the creator of the universe? In what way do I need to trust God to deliver me today? Am I willing to wait on God for his timing and his purposes? Will I live in a confident expectation of God's work and his action on my behalf? In what way do I need to stop trying to deliver myself today and to trust in him? I want to ask you to believe in God for the answer to each of those questions, to trust in him and to, to seek those answers as we prepare to respond. Um, as we do that in singing, um, I'll be in the back and some of our pastors will be in the back as we are each week. And we would love to talk with you or pray with you if you would like to do that. Uh, or maybe there's somebody else in the body you need to get with and talk about. Maybe you just need to sit in your in your chair and, and ponder some of those things. Or maybe you already know what you need to do and maybe you just need to act on it but i want to invite you to respond in the way that god is speaking to your heart today uh, and and let's respond in faith to him let me pray for us and then we'll sing father you are good and your love endures forever thank you for your kindness to us in christ thank you that while we were your enemies while we shook our fist at you While we disregarded you, you rescued us. You set out to rescue us and you accomplished your purposes. And so God, I pray that even as you give us salvation in Christ, even as you call us to a a purpose beyond ourselves, um, that you would cause us to see that today, individually and corporately. You would cause us to be encouraged by your word. You would cause us to in faith, respond to you and whatever it is that you're calling us to do. If that's to act, if that's to wait on you, would you call us to respond in faith to you? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.